Well, good morning, everyone. It's fantastic to be with you this morning. As many of you probably know by now, since the day has progressed somewhat, uh, it is in fact Father's Day, so that's uh, pretty awesome. Uh, we get to uh, just kind of uh, reflect on, celebrate, think about today uh, some of the realities of what it means to be a dad. So for all of you out there uh, that have the unique privilege of having been called into fatherhood and being a dad, uh, congratulations. That's super cool. I'm so excited for you. It's, it's an incredible space in which we uh, can make the gospel known and can make God known. It's a very unique unique and wondrous uh, particular relationship that God established on this planet for us to be part of uh, that demonstrates some things about him. So the fact that you get to do that, that is awesome. I'm so glad that you get to be a dad. It's one of the cool ways that we get to make God known. Uh, I love being a dad. I, I really do. I enjoy it. I, uh, from the very beginning of having the opportunity to become a dad, I've, I've always thought it's, it's a really cool calling to have on your life uh, to be able to step into being a dad because it really deals in so many ways with so many of the realities that Scripture calls us into, and it's a space that you sort of very easily translate. Yep, this is our calling as Christ followers, and it fits right into this beautiful particular role as dad. Because as a dad, you've, you've got to step in, you've got to, you've got to protect your family, you've got to provide for your family, uh, you've got to also prepare your family, your children for things to come. So you've got to really know a lot and pour a lot out. I mean, it's sort of a constant, I've got to learn so I can pour in. And that's a beautiful dynamic to get used to doing. And so you get to do that. Now, I'm not saying being a dad is easy. It's, it's not easy at all because especially in a culture like ours that drives so heavily on uh, provision and production and recreation, uh, there's a lot that, that men have to do in this culture. Women now as well as they step in. But as dads, there's this expectation you got to get out the door you got to make it happen. you got to provide. you got to bring in, bring in the stuff so we can eat and live and have a house and all that. And you got to keep up with the Joneses, whoever they are. And, and so you got to do that. And uh, you've also got to make sure you're building into that marriage so your kids can watch a good marriage. And, and you got to build into the kids. And, and you got to protect the kids. So when your daughter's wearing that thing that you don't think she should, you got to tell her. But she's going to think you're antiquated and go, you're crazy. And you got to deal with all that. And, and then you've got to live with trying to make your boys actually uh, treat people well and they don't want to because they're boys and you got to do all that. Uh, and, and then you've also got to make sure that you're, that you're tooling them up for the future and, 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 and it's, it gets rough. I mean, because you're like you're juggling 10,000 things and don't you feel like sometimes you're just kind of failing at them all? I mean, I think all of us in our culture sometimes feel that way. And, and yet, uh, we're given this beautiful privilege to be able to step in in the midst of that struggle and that hassle and know, yep, it's hard, yep, it's complicated, but every day I get to jump back in and I get to step back into that world. So as I uh, sort of had the opportunity to be a dad, I, I remember thinking as my kids were growing up, there's a season where you sort of just get to, to, just to be there for them and hang out with them, and then they get older, and you get to really pour into them the tools they need to step into this big life and live it. Because in some ways as dad, you know, you leave the house, you go out in the big world, and then you come back from the big dangerous world and you get to walk into the home and say to the kids, out there, it's really crazy. Here's how you're going to do well out there. So you get to prepare them. So as my kids have now entered into 
the preteen and teen years, this opportunity to step into their lives and prepare them for the big world out there uh, has become sort of one of those things I love to try to figure out how to do. So my 15-year-old daughter, uh, my biological daughter, she's been with me for 15 years now from the time she was born, and, and she's sort of uh, out there doing her thing and in here doing her thing. And so I had an opportunity this last semester, Brooke said to me, you want to take on one of her homeschool classes uh, for, for or, um, the Bible class and do something with her for that. So I was like, sure. So I decided let's do systematic theology. Systematic theology is a giant thick book. It's very big. It weighs a ton. It has lots of words on every page and they're very big words. And so it's a very intimidating book because what it is is it is a book that describes from start to finish all of the systems of theology and doctrine. So I'm like, we're going to do that. Hadley, we're doing systematic theology. So I mean, we have been wrestling over the last semester through the triunity of God and how it all works and all its implications and wrestling through how the scriptures are put together and why and where the, where the struggles are that well, we're wrestling with spiritual gifts and the supernatural and how they're supposed to function, if they're supposed to function, when they're supposed to function, and all that. And those are the easy ones. There's some deeper things we've had to navigate. And, and we're still in the book because before all you dads and moms start going, oh my gosh, he pours into his children with systematic theology. I was supposed to do it every week consistently for the semester. I mean, maybe we hit and miss every third to fourth week and covered some ground where we didn't finish the class. We're going to go into the second semester, but it's a big enough book that I could divide it. <laughs> Two semesters, it's beautiful. And so pouring into Hadley and, and wrestling through big theological realities. And then my uh, almost 13-year-old son, Cullen, uh, he's sort of been asking dad uh, the last year or two, hey, can, can we get together? I, I, want, I want to talk and learn some. So I went to Cullen recently, uh, a few months ago, and said, let's get together every Wednesday morning for an hour or so, and, and we'll do something together. So we, we picked the book of Ephesians to do together. And I said, okay, well, we'll study the book of Ephesians. And so I told him, if you're going to study a book of the Bible, uh, you you got to, uh, in, in, in college, here, here's what I picked up there. You got to start with the historical context and learn that. And I remember writing 30, 40 page papers late at night on, on, on walking through a little four chapter book because you've got to break it down in all of its parts and work through it. And so I said to Colin, if we're going to do this, then let's do this right. And so he went back and did his historical contextualization and learned all about Ephesus and Paul and the people there and what was going on. And, and then... Uh, uh, Cull and I were supposed to go on this little day trip to Jacksonville together, just him and I. And so I said to him before the trip, before we go on the trip, I want you to read uh, the book of Ephesians in one sitting, but like a letter. Because, you know, it was a letter. I, it, it was actually written as a letter. And when have you ever gotten a letter and like read the first paragraph and then put it away for a month and then come back to it? Or when have you started the first paragraph, stopped by the second line and said, I should go check the Greek origin of this word before I move on, right? I mean, no, you read a letter. When it comes, you read the whole thing. And you don't break out the details. I said, just go read the letter. So he goes and does that. And we get in the car to Jacksonville. We're driving up. And I said, okay, Colin, I'm hanging out in Ephesus. I'm sitting in the house. You're my friend. You run over to my house. You've just read a letter from Paul. You're super excited. And you come tell me, oh my gosh, Paul wrote a letter. And I say to you, what did he say? What do you tell me? I mean, you read the letter. What do you tell me? So Colin proceeds to tell me kind of what the letter says, you know, in, in sort of summary term. And when he was done summarizing the letter, 
I'm driving in the car to Jacksonville, and I think to myself, I could line up a thousand pastors right now, no joke, line them up, and have them come past one at a time and say, break down the book of Ephesians for me, summary, real quick, and none of them would get it like he just did. I mean, just unbelievable, this simple, beautiful gospel realities all, all through, and I'm just like driving, like, oh, it's just so, so beautiful, it's so wonderful. He understands the gospel. Now again, uh, we haven't met every Wednesday morning. It's been inconsistent, and he's been on me about that. So don't worry. It's no perfect vander at home. It's just scattered in between. I'm trying to pour into my children a big, challenging theological realities that that I learned in college when they're in their preteens. Why? Why? Because because I know something that you all know as well if you've been around Mosaic for any given period of time. That, that you and I have a, a grand and incredible purpose to live out there in the big world. I don't know what my kids are going to do when they grow up. I don't know if they're going to go into politics or education, if they're going to go into uh, vocational ministry or business. I don't know if they're going to become a surfer in Costa Rica. I have no idea. I hope not. I mean, it's not that it's bad. I'm just like, that'd be kind of odd to have a, what does your son do? He's a surfer in Costa Rica. But, um, but, but whatever they end up doing, wherever they end up landing, here's what I do know about my kids. That, that won't change their purpose. It won't change what they're on this planet to do because that's true for all of us. That never changes. My children, like me, have their purpose restored by the redemptive work of Jesus. So when they go out there into whatever they're going to end up doing in every circumstance, relationship, and resource reality, they've got to live out their purpose, which is what? To, to, to know God fully and to make God known fully, that is to carry the gospel, to carry the beauty of the gospel. And I want them to be able to walk into every circumstance, relationship, and resource reality, uh, carrying that gospel with precision, with confidence, and efficiently. Doing it well. I want them to do that. So whatever they end up doing, I, I want to prepare them for that. Because as we go out into the world, we are called, invited to be able to carry that gospel that way. To live it out so that it informs our everyday and to declare it in a manner that people can understand. Peter writes to the church in 1 Peter. I just want to read this to you real quick. You don't even have to turn there. It's just a very quick verse. But listen to what Peter says about carrying the gospel into the world. 1 Peter chapter 3 uh, in verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you, right? So what does he say? If you're going to carry the gospel, it starts here. Live as though God is actually God. So let him inform you, let the gospel inform you, and live it out. And then as you live it out, make sure that you can confidently, with precision, give an answer for the hope that is within you, that you can share the gospel. And this is what I want my children to be able to do. We have been traveling through the book of Acts. And in our journey through the book of Acts, we have found ourselves traveling with one particular individual. His name is Paul. We've been with him for a while now. And Luke is writing Paul's story down as Paul encounters others. And then we get to know their stories as well. So where have we most recently spent our time with Paul? Paul traveled out of Antioch. He traveled into Galatia. He traveled west, uh, heading to the Aegean Sea, crossed over the Aegean Sea into Macedonia. He hit Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. He kind of traveled down the Aegean Sea. He's on the southern end of the Aegean Sea now in Corinth, and we were hanging out with him there. 
Last week, we left Corinth with Paul. He's written the letter to the church in Thessalonica now. Uh, he's, he's heading back to Antioch to go back to his sending church to report back. That's where we were last week. We have never along the way lost in the story Paul. We've been with him. Wherever Paul goes, we go, right? Because that's the story we're tracking. So Paul leaves Corinth, goes to Censorea on, the, on the, uh, the edge of the Aegean Sea, little port town six and a half miles from Corinth, crosses over the Aegean Sea back in toward Syria where Antioch is, and he stops in Ephesus. We find out he has this couple with him, this married couple. Their names are Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila came down from Rome because they were kicked out of Rome uh, when things went crazy there with Christianity, and they were forced to come down to Corinth. When Paul comes to Corinth, he meets up with Priscilla and Aquila. Who are they? We find out that they are tent makers. They're just regular tent makers. They, they come, and that actually means making tents, right? Because we use that term in English like, a, you're a tent maker. You don't actually make tents, but they actually make tents. So they're tent makers, for real, for real. And so what they did is they made dwellings for people that traveled a bunch, right? They kind of made sleeping bags. It's like for, but except people didn't camp for recreation back there. People traveled, and whenever they had to travel, they would have tents so that they could be secure on their travels. So this was a lucrative business, but it was a simple business. They hang out with Paul for about 18 months in Corinth. Now they're traveling with Paul. He drops them off in Ephesus and heads on further down back to Antioch. And where did we leave off? Paul is in Galatia and Pergia, buzzing around there, and he is strengthening the disciples, right? So last week we were reminded, you're on mission when you're on mission, right? And when you take a break from mission, what then? Well, you're still on mission. That's what we learned last year. You're always on mission. There is no, I'm off mission for a while, leave me alone. You're carrying the gospel, that's your purpose, wherever you are, whether in rest or in busyness, whether on go or on slow, you're still on mission carrying the gospel. And so, Paul is on mission doing that. And now we jump back into the story, and here should be the expectation, just so you know, okay? Who have we been traveling with all this time? Paul. Paul is closing out his secondary, second, second great church planting movement, his second missionary journey, and now Paul's about to enter his third missionary journey. He's been hanging out in Galatia for a little while. Now what should we expect? That Paul's going to launch into the next journey, and that's exactly what happens. We just continue the story of Paul, except for this one thing. Take a look. Turn to the book of Acts. If you have a Bible that we uh, gave to you on the way, or you grabbed on the way in from the door, uh, we are going to be Acts chapter 18, and that is on page 603. 603 if you're using one of the Bibles we provide. If you brought a smart device or your own Bible, go to Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Acts 18, 24. Now in verse 23, where we left off last week, it says, after spending some time there, he departed and went... Um, from one place to the next, going through the region of Galatia and Pergia, strengthening all the disciples. So we're with Paul. Now you would think the next line would say, then Paul left Galatia and headed to, right? Except it says this. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. 
So that sort of seems odd. Now, if you're just reading the Bible and you're not paying attention, then it doesn't seem odd because you're not paying attention. But if you are following Paul and Paul's in Galatia and the next line is, oh, by the way, there was this guy in Ephesus. His name was Apollos and he came to Ephesus and he was teaching the things of Jesus. You would think as I did, you'd go, uh, I don't understand. Did we just leave Paul in Galatia? Is, is Paul now in Ephesus? Did, we, did Paul travel back to Ephesus? No, Paul is not in Ephesus. We did not follow Paul. Here's what Luke did. In a single moment, Luke kind of did one of these in the story. We're following Paul. We're following Paul. Oh, by the way, back in Ephesus, I want to tell you about this other guy, Apollos, real quick. And you're like, what? Who's Apollos? Have you heard of Apollos? I haven't heard of Apollos. Why are we with Apollos? Uh, this is not Apollos' story. This is the book of Acts, and we're with Paul right now. Can we please stay in Galatia with Paul? Why are we in Ephesus? And so we will look at why on earth uh, we are now back in Ephesus with Apollos. So let's start with who, who, who Apollos is. I mean, who's this Apollos guy? So here's what we know about Apollos. Luke, as always, gives us just enough details so we know everything we need to know and leaves out all the details we'd love to know but don't need to know for the story. Here's what he does. Watch. It says there was a guy named Apollos, and he was a native of Alexandria. Now, that tells us a ton. It's like saying uh, this right here is Richard, and he is a graduate of Harvard University. Or you, you, you say a name that everyone's familiar with, and they all know what that institution or space is. Alexandria was probably the learning center of this day in all of the known world, okay? Now, one would argue that maybe Athens was up there with them, and there were a couple of other spaces that in this time Rome was considered a learning center, but Alexandria was where you went if you wanted to be in the top of the game of learning. The Library of Alexandria, you should, you should hear that and go, oh, I think in middle school somewhere I heard about that. Yes, it was a famous library where all of knowledge was brought together. So if you went to Alexandria, came from Alexandria, were trained in Alexandria, that was a big deal. That meant that you were likely very smart, okay? Just that you were, you were in the upper echelons of the, of the learning institutions. You were an intellectual. Uh, this guy, Apollos, is a native of Alexandria, which means that he grew up there. And the only reason you would have grown up in Alexandria is likely if your parents were very connected in Alexandria and were intellectuals. And then you also, you know how it works in this world. It's the same deal. You know, when you're in that crowd, then your kids get in that crowd. That's why every famous actor now has a famous actor or actress son or daughter, right? Not because they're any good. It's because they had that dad. They may be good. I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just saying they may not be good, right? But it doesn't matter because they're in that circle. And so this is what happens. Now, he grows up there, and what Luke is saying to us is, uh, check one, uh, Apollos is very, very sharp. Check, okay? He is a native of Alexandria. Not only that, but he adds to it, and he says this, and he was an eloquent speaker. So not only did he have it here, but it could come out here really well too. So he could take what was in here and bring it about. So he goes, this guy shows up in Ephesus. He's from Alexandria. He's super smart, and he speaks really, really well. So we're already looking at this guy like, who is this guy? But look, he says more about him. He says this, he was competent in the scriptures. So now we know he's not just trained in the philosophies of the culture, he is trained in the beautiful Old Testament scriptures of the day, so he understands the scriptures very well. So what Luke is doing is he's trying to bring to us this guy that says, I don't want you to think what I'm about to say about this guy is bad. He's not a bad guy. He doesn't have bad philosophies. He doesn't even have bad theologies. He's brilliant, he's eloquent, and he knows the Bible super well. Okay, good. What else does he say? He says this. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. Wow. So what else does he have going for him? He knows the story of Jesus. 
He's been instructed in the way of Jesus. And not only that, and being fervent in spirit, so Apollos is also passionate. It's kind of unfair, isn't it? He's smart, he's eloquent, he's passionate, and he knows Jesus in the ways of Jesus. And he happens to know the Bible super well. And so you're like, wow, this is incredible. And look at this. Not only that, but look what it says. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So here's the other thing we know about Apollos. Was he a false teacher? Was he spinning the gospel? Was he making the gospel something it's not like the guys were doing in Galatia? No, no, he goes, no, no, everything he taught about Jesus was totally accurate. There's only one thing Paul, Luke adds to this that gives us a clue as to what's about to happen in the rest of the story. He says this, but he only knew the baptism of John. That's all he knew. So here's what he's saying. This guy, Apollos, is passionate. He understands the Bible well. He understands Jesus as Messiah. He's teaching Jesus as Messiah. He's not twisting the gospel. And here's why he's not twisting the gospel. Because he doesn't yet know the full gospel. He only has part of the story. So the part he's teaching, he's teaching really well and really accurately. What was the baptism of John? Let's talk about that for a second because that tells us what Apollos already knows. You see how Luke gives us everything we need to know in two sentences? Apollos only knew the baptism of John. John's baptism was John the Baptist when he baptized Jesus and the people. And his baptism did two things. When you talk about John's baptism, here's what those two things are. One, John's baptism declared the Messiah. Remember, John said, here is the Lamb of God. He's come. I don't, I don't fill his shoes. He's the guy. So when you say he knew John's baptism, what you mean is that he knew that Jesus was the Messiah because John had declared it so. And after studying the scripture and being taught in the ways of the Lord, he now was fully convinced that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. So what is he preaching? Jesus is the Messiah. Is that accurate? Yes. Jesus is the Messiah because John said it and John was the one in the Old Testament uh, prophesied to be prepared in the way. Check. Accurate. The Old Testament says he was the Messiah. Check. Accurate. Here are the 300 plus prophecies that say he was the Messiah. Check. Accurate. Is he teaching accurately about Jesus so far? Yes. Does he know that Jesus died and rose from the dead? Well, we don't know for sure, but we make the assumption he probably did not. Remember, we do not live in the global society of CNN and Fox News and Facebook. When somebody died and rose from the dead, even though that's a big deal, you had to find out about it because somebody came to your town and told you. And it is very possible you could even live in the same town of others that knew things and not know. Because we did not live in a world with information flowing back and forth like it does today. You and I know more in a minute than people a hundred years ago knew in a lifetime. And so we can't compare ourselves to this. People actually could have not known about these big things. So it says he knew Jesus was the Messiah, but he only knew the, John, the baptism of John. So he had not hit, heard the whole story. He didn't know about the Holy Spirit. He didn't know about Pentecost in Jerusalem. He didn't know about, know about the movement of the gospel. He just knew Jesus was Messiah. And he was preaching that accurately. Not only that, but the baptism of John was also a baptism of repentance. So here's what John's baptism says. Jesus is who he said he was. Come follow him. Does that sound good to you? See, that's accurate, right? Jesus is who he said he was. Come follow him. The only part that he does not yet know is Jesus died and rose from the dead to rescue our souls, redeem our future, restore our purpose. That has changed everything. The law no longer is a burden to us, but a gift. And the gospel has set us free. And we now get to live empowered by the Holy Spirit, carrying the gospel into the world. He didn't know that part. Is that part accurate too? Yes, but he didn't know it. So he was only preaching a piece of the story. So look what happens. 
He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, it says in verse uh, 26. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. I love the way Luke puts this. It doesn't say they explained the way of God accurately. They explained the way of God what? More accurately. You see, he had it down, but he didn't have it all. And so there was a need to say, what you're saying is correct, Apollos. Thank you. That's awesome. But you didn't know all this other stuff. Now, when we read something like this, one little line in the Bible, and Priscilla and Aquila grabbed Apollos and pulled him aside and said, bro, you, 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 you don't know the whole story. We think it went down like that. But think about how awkward that must have been. Who is Apollos? He is a native of Alexandria, eloquent in speech, brilliant in the scriptures, coming and traveling the world, sent out from his people that taught him to come and tell the world about Jesus, and he can argue the daylights out of people that know Scripture, right? We'll find that out in a second. And who are you, Priscilla and Aquila? You make tents. Whoop, whoop, right? So let me just tell you, have you ever had those moments where someone that knows a boatload more than you do is clearly ahead of the game on every level, but there's something that's amiss, and you need to, you're the one called out to say, hey, go, would you go grab a cup of coffee with them? Tell them that you, you, they're missing it here. How does that feel? Does that feel good? That feels awkward. Like, don't you lose sleep the night before? I can imagine Priscilla and Aquila uh, riding their little horse to the coffee shop, probably a little Oxum coffee on the side there in Ephesus, <laughs> and riding, riding over and talking to each other, like, what, what, where do we begin? I mean, he's, he knows his stuff well. Yeah, but we gotta tell him. It, it's clear he doesn't even know about the resurrection, probably. I mean, we gotta tell, ask him about the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but he's gonna talk circles around us. I know, honey, stop. We're gonna trust God. We're full of the Holy Spirit, remember? Okay, get to the coffee shop. Hi, Apollos. So here's the deal, man. Love what you're saying, do. But I, I don't, have you heard that Jesus actually died and rose from the dead? I mean, that's, a, that's an awkward thing to say when somebody doesn't know that. The Messiah you're preaching is dead and he's back. <laughs> so worked out well for us. And so you start this conversation, right? And you have this conversation with Apollos, and in the society we live in, which is equal to the society there, these in the upper echelons of intellectualism don't generally sit around and pay much attention to the tent makers, right? So this is how, this is how the story goes. Take a look. Priscilla and Aquila, it says, explain to him the way of God more accurately than he had it. And then it says, and when he wished to cross to Achia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples. And just stop there for a second. Aren't you frustrated? I am. Where's the conversation? Where's the coffee shop? It was like, like, literally like this. They got with Apollos to share with him the more accurate truth. I'm like, okay, what happened? And then Apollos wanted to go to Corinth, and when he wanted to, they wrote him a letter of recommendation. Like, what happened at the coffee? But you see, as always, Luke is giving us all the information we need to know what happened. He just isn't giving us the details because others, otherwise you'd never read this thing because it would be 27 volumes. So he goes, look, here's what you need to know. When Apollos left Ephesus and went to Corinth, because that's where he's going next, he went to Corinth and the brothers in Ephesus, including Priscilla and Aquila, wrote a letter of recommendation saying to the brothers in Corinth, where Priscilla and Aquila came from, this guy's awesome. Welcome him immediately. He's going to be a great asset to your church. What does that mean happened at that cup of coffee? It means that Apollos listened to Priscilla and Aquila and went, wow, 
thank you. I had no idea. This is incredible. And that Apollos was then, uh, then encountered the reality of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And when he went off to Corinth, he's going off to Corinth now, having been discipled in Ephesus by two tent makers so he can go and be an asset to Corinth. And look what it says in his journey. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, which is where Corinth is, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. See what he did? Apollos gets to Corinth and becomes a massive asset to the church there. So much so that later on when Paul writes the book of first and or the letter of first and second Corinthians, he actually talks a bunch about Apollos. Because people then are going, Who, you like Apollos more or Paul more? I like Apollos more. I like Paul more. So Paul writes to him and goes, stop it. It's not about Apollos. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. He'll, he'll do that later on. We'll get to that. But here's what's beautiful about it, right? Is that Apollos is kind of a Pauline character. He's got great knowledge of the scriptures. He's passionate and full of zeal. He knows Jesus well. He's now encountered the gospel. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And he's heading out to go and argue with the most intellectuals of the world to bring Christ to the surface. It's incredible. I mean, you want a bunch of Apollos running around, right? You want a bunch of Pauls running around. How on earth... Did Paul and Apollos get to be the people they are, not preaching a bunch of junk, but preaching this? Because they sat at coffee with the Priscilla and Aquila. That's what they did. That's where the whole story changed. See, what you begin to realize in the story is this. I think the reason Luke so very intentionally pulled us away from Paul for a moment in the story, because next week we're back with Paul again, right? This is, why, this is why I think Luke did this. We're going with Paul, we're going with Paul. Oh, by the way, back in Ephesus, Apollos showed up and this happened with Priscilla and Aquila and then Apollos went to Corinth and now Apollos is in Corinth and, and Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus and Paul's in Galatia. And you kind of get this feeling, where is Paul? He's in Galatia. Is Paul also in Ephesus? Yeah, because if Apollo had shown up, Apollos had shown up and Priscilla and Aquila weren't there, isn't what Priscilla and Aquila did what Paul would have done? Yeah. See, Paul's in Ephesus because Priscilla and Aquila are in Ephesus. And where else is Paul now? He's back in Corinth because Apollos is in, Cor in Corinth. See, Paul is everywhere. Paul is moving through the whole known world, but it's not Paul. It's Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos. See, it's not Paul that's everywhere. It's the gospel that's everywhere. The gospel is everywhere because the gospel is being poured out one human being to another. And when it's being poured out, it's not just being poured out in a sprinkling of simplicity, but it's being poured out in the depths of complexity. See, Priscilla and Aquila, remember? Who did they sit with for 18 months? Paul in Corinth, making what? Making tents. And what's Paul doing? He's writing letters to other churches. He's wrestling with big theological issues. He's, he's wrestling with the implications of the gospel. Don't you think Paul would have been sitting with Priscilla and Aquila, making tents and going, I'm Paul, you seem preoccupied, man. Yeah, I'm just trying to think through the implications of the gospel as it relates to the law and how the law is going to shape us. And, and it, I, I don't know how it's, it's freedom there. And I'm just, just praying about it. And what do you guys think? I'm trying to make a tent, bro. Leave me alone. 18 months of that, listening into Paul's thoughts and dialoguing about the gospel. By the time these two get to Ephesus, you don't think they knew every intricacy of the gospel well? No wonder they could discern so quickly that Apollos has got it, but he hasn't got it all. No wonder they didn't approach Apollos and say, you're a false teacher, get out of here, because they knew he was accurate, but they also knew he needed more accuracy. 
And no wonder Apollos became such an extraordinary force for the gospel in Corinth because Priscilla and Aquila knew what to tell him. Having a simple view of the gospel is very important. It really is. For yourself, to preach the gospel to yourself, you need to keep it simple. For those around you, keep it simple, right? But having a simple view of the gospel is not enough. It's important, but it's not enough. We also have to understand the doctrines and theologies that guard the gospel because they are what guard the truths of the gospel so that we don't present in our life and in our, in our articulation of the gospel a accurate but not fully accurate view of the gospel. So it is an invitation we have as we remember that our incredible privilege is that our purpose has been restored so that we live our lives on mission, then as a sustaining reality to that purpose restored, we also have to take seriously the reality that we keep digging into knowing God more theologically so that in knowing Him more, we can make Him known better. To which many of you say, I'm no theologian. Theology is for other people. I'm not, a the, I'm, I'm not an intellectual. I'm not a theologian. Who is it God said should get to know him? It's out of curiosity. Did you ever read in all of the scriptures, once I rescue your soul, if you happen to be an intellectual and you happen to be super smart and you happen to be a theologian type, you should get to know me. But if you don't, don't worry about it. Just go with the little cliff and the cross and the little guy walking across it. That's all you need to know. No, he didn't say that. He said, once you encountered the cross and the little guy, and that's beautiful, then dig deeper. No more. Never stop there. Always keep pursuing more of the beauty of who I am. And here it is. And then you go, there's big words in here. I know I had to look them up too. I was not born with big words in my head. I still don't. I do systematic theology. I've gone through Bible college and I'm with my daughter and we're reading a chapter and she goes, what does this word mean? I'm like, I, I just, what, what did you say? And I'm Googling, come on. Oh, it means yes, it's beautiful. Let me read the, I mean, I don't know either. I got to look stuff up too. See, we think somehow because it's big out there, it sits outside of our wheelhouse, but it shouldn't be. You just got to take the time to jump in. You got to decide that personal study matters. See, we live in a culture that is so obsessed with production and recreation, right? Everything we do is about produce more so you can recreate more in a simple version. And yes, so where do we place all of our priorities? We say we're busy. We're very busy. What are you busy doing? Producing so we can recreate, right? I mean, producing so our kids can have all the tools to produce so that they can have all the tools to recreate. And then God comes along and goes, look, producing and recreating is all good and fun. It's a side note though. Here's what matters. Know me, know me well. So that when you live informed by me, you live well. And then when you speak about me, you speak well. And when you do, then guess what your story is? Your story is Apollos' story. It's Paul's story. It's Priscilla and Aquila's story. It's Lydia's story. It's the jailer's story. It's, it's the fisherman's story and it's the intellectual story because all of our stories are the same when it comes to this. We can all know God well. We can all study and we can all learn so that we can all live this out well. So personal study should matter to you. It should be a priority to you. You should take the time. We live in the information age. You want to see, you, you go, where, where do I begin? I don't, I don't know what to study. It's complicated out there. 
It, it is a little complicated, but it takes one email to somebody that you trust to say, can you recommend a few good books that I start with? Every theological issue on this planet has been articulated in every language practically possible in the most simple and the most complex ways that you want. You want complex, I'll give it to you. You want simple, I'll give it to you. It's all out there. We have more available to us than we've ever had in our entire human history, and we still don't do it because we say the obstacles are too big. Man, dig in and dig into personal study. Second, get someone to disciple you. Find your Priscilla and Aquila. Find your Paul. Find someone that you can go to and say, listen, can you hang with me and just help me? Now, let me just tell you up front, they're going to be inconsistent. They'll make lots of commitments and they're not going to pull through on all of them, okay? Welcome to America. And then here's what we do. I, I tried discipleship, man. We started a nine-week deal. We got week three. It was inconsistent. We quit. If it's that easy to quit, well then yeah, you're not going to get anywhere either. You don't quit on that stuff. You try again and again and again and again. And then and when you die, you will have had multiple three-week encounters with some good disciples. It'll be awesome. <laughs> but the, the fact of the matter is what I'm getting at is this. Just because it's hard, it doesn't mean you stop. Keep trying until you find someone that can pour into your life in the seasons you're in. And I don't care where you're at on, this, on, on the spectrum. You need someone to pour into your life. And then have the humility, like Apollos did, that when you find someone to pour in, they don't have to be someone that in stature in our community stands above you, okay? Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers, and yet they shaped the heart and mind of Apollos, the eloquent, brilliant Apollos. Sometimes the best disciples you can have are people that know half as much as you, but know something more accurately than you do that you need to know. So find someone that seems to know Jesus well, that you don't really get, and go ask what it looks like to hang out with them and then start getting poured into it. And finally, start pouring into someone. If you read the books on education, they all say the same thing at some point. The best form of learning is when you have to teach. That's right, teach, it's teach by the way. If some of you are like, oh, that's revolutionary. It's not mine, it's not my idea. It came out of books, okay? The best form of learning is when you have to teach. And so for you, it's important to start right up front saying, what do I know about Jesus and who can I go and teach it to? Who can I go and spend some time over coffee with? Who can I dialogue with? Folks, we do not take seriously the call into discipleship because of multiple reasons. And not taking that seriously undoes our ability to be on sustainable mission because we're not focused and we don't really know enough accurately. So here's the deal. We're not false teachers we don't totally blow it, but we got half the story all the time. And then you're in Apollos, and that can be damaging. Don't do that. Get the whole story. Dig in personally. Get into discipleship. Disciple others. Live on mission. And let's watch how the depths of our knowledge of the gospel spurs us on to be great gospel carriers. Peter said it, right? You heard me say it. Make Jesus Lord in your life. That means you got to know him well. And then always have an answer for the hope that is within you. May we be a people that do that well. Let's pray. God, thanks for this little story that you threw into the mix, inspiring Luke to divert from Paul for a moment in time and talk a little bit about Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. I'm so grateful, God, that Priscilla and Aquila are the fruit of Paul's discipleship and Apollos is now the fruit of Priscilla and Aquila's discipleship and Many will be the fruit of Apollos' discipleship and yet all of them, God, all of them have needed to be discipled 
and have stepped into discipling. May we be able to say, as Apollos could, that we know the scriptures well, that we understand the realities of the gospel well, and that we teach and live accurately. And then may we have the humility to know that there is always more accurately to yet be discovered. And may we pursue that with all of our hearts in personal study and in discipleship relationships that we make a priority in our lives. Make it so, Jesus, we pray in your precious name.